Welcome to the audio version of the God Patent. The audio version is copyright 2010. The printed version available from Numina Press is copyright 2009. The audio version is read by the author, Ransom Stevens. Chapter 1. The constable set the arrest warrant on the counter between them. Ryan, scrambling for something to say, scraped dirty oil from under his thumbnail with a screwdriver. Jail meant he had no other options. It was tempting to relax in this pool of defeat, but no, that was not the man he wanted to be. Never again. The constable said, Don't make sense to me how jailing you helps anybody. If you can't pay your child support change in oil, how are you going to do it from jail? Officer, the judge won't reduce my child support. And there aren't any jobs that pay anything close to what I was making when Linda threw me out. His words began to flow together. I can't come within a hundred feet of my son. I want my wife back. I want my family back. But I can't even... The constable, well over six feet tall, had to lean forward on the counter to make his eyes level with Ryan's. And as he did, his eyes narrowed in recognition. Ryan McNear? Didn't you used to coach peanut league football? Um, yeah? Struggling to recover some poise, Ryan forced himself to speak slowly. I coached my son's team two years ago, the Shorthorns. He licked his lips into a smile. Framed by his chisel-cut jaw, and in the light of blue eyes and auburn wire-brush hair, his smile looked calm and warm, and sometimes it was, but not now. Ryan's wet-lipped grin was his response to stress. As a boy, he used that smile to soften arguments between his sisters. In school, it broke up fights. In business, it brought opposing sides together. It gave the appearance that he saw humor in the situation, that he couldn't be rattled, and in so doing, it disarmed conflict. Pretending to look down at the counter, he stole a glance at the name tag above the constable's badge. Holcomb? Bill Holcomb? And as he spoke the name, he remembered. Your son, Willie, right? Didn't he get hurt in our first game? Yes, sir, he did. Ryan leaned back on his heels and set the screwdriver next to the cash register. Along with his smile, the movement gave the illusion of confidence. But the memory of Willie Holcomb screaming in pain felt like another count against him. After the cast come off, my boy wanted nothing to do with football, Holcomb said. Nothing I could say would get him back on the field till you called. I don't know what you said, but he's turning into quite a linebacker. He squinted at Ryan's name tag. Assistant manager? I thought you were an engineer. What happened? Ryan shut the door to the garage, directed Holcomb to the waiting room, sat next to him, and told the story. Not the complete story. That would have sent him straight to jail. But he couldn't have described all his failures in ten minutes anyway. Holcomb nodded occasionally and barely blinked. Ryan finished with the words he'd said to a judge six months ago. They hadn't helped then. I made plenty of mistakes, but all I can do is keep trying to fix them. And I'm here to arrest you. Holcomb, with his elbows on his knees, rested his face in his hands and started speaking. He didn't stop for fifteen minutes. He talked about what it takes to break a man. Maybe he'd seen it in his job. But it looked to Ryan as though he had walked close to the line himself. 
As he spoke, he looked out the window past the cars waiting to have their oil changed and at the used car lots down the street. By the time he focused on the tired cinder block saloon next door, he was talking about his wife and children and how the smallest decisions can destroy the greatest dreams. Finally, he looked at Ryan. Sometimes it just don't seem like justice is very just. He stood, handed Ryan the arrest warrant, and ran his hand along his belt over his sidearm past the radio module. I have to cuff you, he said, and stared deep into Ryan's eyes. Ryan's smile disappeared. You see, I have to handcuff you, Holcomb continued, but dang if I didn't leave my cuffs out in the cruiser. I'll have to go back out and get them, and before I come back in, I think I'll call my wife. What you're going through scares hell out of me, and I'd like to get a little distracted and want to hear my wife say that she loves me. He tipped his hat to Ryan, turned, and headed out the door. Chapter 2 Driving away from everything you love is hard. Driving away in a Ford Probe with over 200,000 miles on it is almost impossible. A tire blew 15 miles from Oklahoma City. It was hot and dirty on the side of the interstate, but a good place to stop and think. When he got to Interstate 40, he'd have a decision to make. The two relevant things to keep in mind when you run away are, first, you have to choose a direction, and second, since you can't run away from your problems, you might as well run toward their solutions. Ryan had enough gas money to get to the coast, either coast, but not enough for a deposit and first and last month's rent on an apartment. It was autumn of 2003, and unemployment in high tech was over 25% nationwide, higher back in Dallas, and with more layoffs being announced every day. He could go back east to Andover, the Boston suburb where he grew up. They all still lived there, mom, his sisters, and the huge, marginally functional network that is every Catholic kid's birthright. He wouldn't have to pay rent for a while, and Andover was sort of a mini Silicon Valley. He could probably land some contract work hacking software and build from that when things turned around. It wasn't a bad idea. Mom would be happy to see him, too. But he'd have to tell her what happened, and she'd get that look. Her chin would crumple, her eyes would sink, and her hands would reach out and shake. The same look that had burned into his memory when he was ten years old, and she'd told him his father was dead. After installing the donut spare tire, he stood in the shade of an oak tree off the highway and fidgeted with an acorn. He pictured himself driving into his hometown. When he got in trouble as a boy, he used to run to his grandma's house. If she were still alive, he'd go there now. He tugged the acorn from the branch, and a funny thing happened. A simple, obvious thing, but it startled Ryan. He knew exactly what Grandma would say. He could even hear her light Irish brogue. What sort of man would you be, then? Grandma always made these decisions easy. He smiled up to the sky and winked at her. In Oklahoma City, he sent a postcard to Mom. said, I love you. Try not to worry. I'm healthy and strong. Sean and I will visit after I fix things. Sean was the son he was leaving behind. He went west on I-40, headed for Silicon Valley, the electrical engineer's mecca. Two days after leaving Texas, 
Ryan emerged from the fertile valleys of Central California to the San Francisco Bay Area. He landed in a semi-permanent traffic jam at the junction of four different freeways. A new VW Beetle whose license plate read D-Bugged sat in the next lane. The driver, a man in his early 30s, about the same age as Ryan, glared back. Ryan couldn't know it, but that little distraction would change everything. He had been to Silicon Valley for conferences and customer meetings. He thought he knew his way around, but he went north when he should have gone south. And an hour later, instead of arriving in Mecca, he was stuck in a traffic jam in Oakland. The sun was setting across the bay beyond the Golden Gate Bridge. It really was gold, and it really did look like a gate, a gate to a better place. Before everything collapsed, Ryan had a buddy named Foster Reed. Foster always insisted that everything happens for a reason. Ryan wasn't sure whether it was born of stupid hope or divine revelation. But he now believed that the little quirks in life are more like guideposts than accidents. The version of Ryan McNear who had visited Silicon Valley on business would have cussed and turned around. The revised version smiled inside and followed the signs to the Golden Gate. By the time he pulled on to the Golden Gate Bridge, a cool blanket of fog covered the great suspension cables rising up to the towers. When he got to the other side of the bridge, he just kept going. The highway narrowed through the rolling hills, and as the distance between each town grew, Ryan started to wonder about the reason for that wrong turn. Before the guy in the beetle glared at him, his destination had at least been vague. Now it was a total mystery. He was also on his last tank of gas. After a long stretch between off-ramps, he pulled onto a dark, rough road and parked between two big rigs. Lights in the distance reflected from a river flowing parallel to the road. Ryan reclined in the front seat, the only hotel he could afford. Chapter 3 Rays of sunlight pushed Ryan's eyes open. The big rigs were gone, the muddy river rolled north, and the sun was rising over a mountain ridge closed in a plaid of vineyards. With fingers crossed, he turned the key. It started on the first try. A steady stream of cars drifted in the opposite direction. A few expensive sedans, lots of minivans and SUVs, but mostly Japanese imports driven by sleepy white people. It looked like California's version of his commute back in Dallas. The street curled under the freeway along the river. He passed a sign, Petaluma City Limits, population 55,900. The density of buildings increased, old Victorians on the left and warehouses on the right. He drove up to a park with public restrooms. The feeling that everything was arranged came back. The wrong turn that led him to the Golden Gate was one thing, but having the fuel light come on just as he pulled up to McNear Park clinched it. He ducked into the restroom with a change of clothes and his shaving kit and emerged ten minutes later looking and smelling civilized. He found a coffee shop among the early 20th century buildings, got a cup of black tea, and sat at a table near a boulevard-facing window. A man sat at the table next to him reading a newspaper. He had long gray hair tied in a ponytail and was wearing sandals with socks and a purple t-shirt that said, Keep Sonoma Grapes Monsanto Free. Without looking up or speaking, the man handed Ryan the sports section and classifieds. 
There was a small map in the apartment rental section. Most apartments were within three blocks of town. Most of the jobs were across the river. There were a handful of engineering jobs farther north in Santa Rosa, a few back south in San Francisco, but, of course, most were down in Silicon Valley. With the paper tucked under his arm, Ryan headed out to find an apartment. He passed McNear's restaurant and saloon and walked up McNear Avenue toward McNear Landing. That tenuous hint that he had been drawn here for a reason was getting out of hand. God might as well have put up a billboard. Ryan McNear, rebuild your life in Petaluma. Filled with confidence he hadn't felt in years, he walked the tree-lined streets. A woman with long, dark hair on an old bicycle that had shiny chrome fenders waited next to him at a stoplight, muttering to herself. The darkness of her ankle-length black skirt was amplified by her pale skin. When she pedaled away, her hair and skirt swirled behind her. At an apartment manager's office, Ryan discovered that his lack of immediate cash would be a greater impediment to getting housing than he'd hoped. Plus, rents were twice what they'd been in Texas. Finding a hole in that soft blanket of arranged destiny was strangely comforting. Ryan didn't want the solutions to be handed to him. An apartment-for-rent sign hanging from an expansive but drooping porch on one of the old craftsman-style mansions directed Ryan to an elderly lady sitting at an iron table. He filled out a rental application and licked his lips into that disarming smile. She was apologetic, but wouldn't take a renter without the standard deposit plus first and last month's rent. Instead, she offered a suggestion. Go up Liberty Street to the black and red Victorian. Dodge Nutter might rent you something. Chapter 4 Ryan walked up a short, steep hill to a Victorian with fire-engine red siding and twin black turrets topped with conic spires. The carpenter's lace trim sparkled in gold with tiny but screaming slivers of lime green. Most of the other Victorians at the top of the hill were partitioned into apartments, too, but they had multiple entrances and tasteful paint. The red and black monstrosity at the corner towered over them and had just the one entrance, ten-foot-high double doors. An apartment-for-rent sign was duct-taped to the porch's iron railing. As he climbed the stairs, Ryan decided that the place must be haunted, and by the time he reached the porch, could picture Grandpa Munster resurrecting Herman in the basement. Four mailboxes were mounted on the wall. There was no doorbell. Instead, under a little window, the sort of window you'd expect in the door of an abbey, was a huge goat-head knocker. He let it fall an inch, and the iron-on-iron clap shook the porch and echoed around the neighborhood. After a couple of minutes, Ryan peeked through the little window. It took a few seconds for his eyes to adjust, and just as he could make out some details inside, he heard scuffling behind him. A girl with long, dark hair combed to one side so that it hung over her left eye dragged a huge skateboard up the stairs. Scam in the crib? It cracked the seriousness right out of Ryan. I'm looking for diamonds, a major stash. You got any diamonds in there? In addition to the skateboard, the girl was struggling under a full knapsack. Ryan said, you need a hand with that? She cast Ryan a quick glare and scampered the rest of the way up to the porch. 
She was wearing black sneakers with striped socks and a black skirt that hung down to her scratched-up knees. Graffiti was scrawled along the hem in white paint, and her tank top was closer to gray than white. She looked a little younger than his son, at least one year on the child side of adolescence. I'm looking for an apartment to rent, Ryan said. She set her skateboard under a bench and let her backpack fall off her shoulders onto the porch. She knelt down and dug through it. Deal with Dodge, then. Yeah, that's what I was told, Ryan said. Sucks to be you. She pulled out a key. Do you know where he is? He'll waddle out of his cave eventually. The way she talked was refreshing. No child-to-adult pretense. Ryan said, I have a kid about your age. Huh. Six billion people on this planet. I'm thinking that's not such a dink. I suppose. He held out his hand. Ryan McNair. She opened the door, dashed through the foyer, and bolted up an oak staircase. Ryan followed as far as the base of the stairs. A door slammed above, and a few seconds later, loud music vibrated the walls. Another odd thing about this Victorian-turned-apartment complex, the foyer opened to someone's living room. An antique couch, diamond-tucked red velvet with sloping arms and lion feet, was set in the center of the room on a matching Persian rug. Ryan leaned against the wall and stared across the room out a picture window at the rolling hills across the valley. The reverberation of the girl's music reminded him of his sisters at that age, and the smell of the well-oiled hardwood floor was just like his grandma's house. Home had never been exactly comfortable, but it was home, and this wasn't too far off. After about ten minutes... The bass line of whatever music the girl was playing had faded into the background, and Ryan heard a voice. It sounded like an AM disc jockey who'd mixed black coffee, scotch, and cigarettes until his tone could define the word gruff. You got a job, McNear? Ryan looked up the stairs and around the living room, but couldn't tell where the voice came from. Sir? Nonplus that whoever was behind that voice knew his name, he consciously relaxed against the wall. A man walked in and sat at the edge of the couch. He was several inches shorter than Ryan, about fifty, bald but with curly hair over his ears and thin glasses perched at the end of a long, pointy nose. He set a thick stack of paper on the table in front of the couch, looked over his glasses at Ryan, and patted the velvet upholstery next to him. Ryan eased into the room and sat as directed. The top sheet was a faxed copy of the rental agreement he'd filled out on the lady's porch half an hour ago. You got a job, McNear? Ryan spoke the way he would to a business colleague in a boardroom. I just got to town. I'm an electrical engineer. Should have a position by the end of the week. Dodge waited, holding his hands together so that the fingertips of one hand just touched those of the other. There was something deeply obnoxious about his extended silence and unwavering stare. Eventually, Ryan gave in and, for no reason he could fathom, started explaining his situation, just the details a reasonable landlord might need, the job situation in Dallas, and that he'd come to California to take an engineering executive position. Dodge laughed, a raspy but screeching chuckle that seemed to echo between the tip of his nose and the paunch of his belly. Did you bring a shovel, McNear? <laughs> the gold rush ended 150 years ago.
Ryan's instinct was to laugh along, but he resisted. The days of avoiding confrontation at any cost ended when the constable showed him that arrest warrant. This time, he let indignation temper his words. I was a director of a Fortune 1000 company. I've led a staff of 50 software jocks developing new technology. <laughs> Software's written in India now. What have you done? I hold half a dozen patents, from artificial intelligence to energy production to networking technology. At the mention of patents, Dodge's eyes opened wider, just for a second, but long enough to bolster Ryan's tenuous confidence. In my last engineering gig, I brought home six figures. And now you don't have enough for first and last on a studio apartment. Dodge leaned back and put his hands behind his head. What did you burn the cash on, Irish boy? Meth? Hookers? Gambling? Child support. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. So why'd she throw you out? Meth? Hookers? Gambling? No apartment was worth this inquisition. Ryan stood and walked out the door. As it swung shut, Dodge called after him. You're homeless without me. Ryan gritted his teeth. Those words hurt. He slumped onto the bench, his feet on the girl's skateboard. Even if everything bounced his way, he was at least a few months from that executive engineering position. He looked across the valley. Things happen for a reason. Maybe having a landlord who could see through his bullshit wasn't such a bad thing. He walked back inside. Are you going to rent me an apartment? I have some ideas of how you might compensate me for the deposit, and first, and last. Let me see the apartment. As Dodge rose from the couch, he let loose a thick, liquid cough, and led Ryan upstairs to a good-sized studio set in the corner of the building. It included one of the two cylindrical towers that framed the Victorian, and had a curved glass window with a 270-degree view across the valley to the mountaintops along the horizon. The kitchenette had one long counter along the interior wall and old but clean appliances. Ryan stared out the window, southeast toward Texas. I don't have first and last. I might not have second. He turned to Dodge. But I'll have third. This time, Dodge threw a wink in with his raspy snicker. <laughs> Well, I'll need to do better collecting from you than your wife does. As he led Ryan back downstairs, he said, I have contracts for you to sign. Lots of contracts. They sat next to each other on the diamond tuck couch, Dodge scrawling on a clipboard, Ryan thumping a pen against his ankle every time Dodge snickered, coughed, wheezed, or cleared his throat. Why'd your wife throw you out? You don't need to know that. I need to know what I'm buying, Dodge said. Cheating, were ya? It's nothing to me. A man has needs. Monogamy is for birds. No. Ryan spoke louder than it warranted, but it was a bare nerve. Ryan had never broken a promise to his wife. Ex-wife. Never. He had clung to that knowledge through the pain of reality. There was more to it, of course, but the tipping point came when Linda found what she thought was proof he'd cheated. Ryan stood and took a step away from Dodge. Didn't cheat, huh? Really? Dodge waited on Ryan with a mirthless smile. 
Throw me a bone, McNear. What mess are you in? He set the clipboard down and put the pen behind his ear. Ryan paced, trying to walk off the vision of Linda sobbing and asking him to leave their home. He clenched every muscle, fighting the urge to walk away. The tension in his body absorbed the tension in his mind, and he realized that swallowing his pride wouldn't be the hardest part of rebuilding his life. He sat back on the couch. Dodge responded with the most offensive smirk Ryan had ever seen. Okay, Ryan said. I'm in debt. Waiting in debt. Debt up to my fucking eyeballs. Closer. How did you get in debt? They set my child support payments when I was a company director. Six months later, the economy crashed and I got laid off. There was no way I could keep up. He stood again and walked across the room. The farther he got from Dodge, the easier it was to talk. If I'd gone to the judge sooner, he might have reduced my payments, but I didn't. I kept thinking there'd be another job, and my debt kept building. The baseline from upstairs came to an abrupt stop. The door slammed, and the girl ran down the stairs. Dodge hollered, Where you going, cat? Forced mentoring with the bitch, she slammed the door behind her. Through the window, Ryan watched the girl jump on her skateboard and zip down the hill. Is she your kid? Mine? No. I don't reproduce, Dodge said. She's a brilliant kid. Damaged, though. Her father died a few years back. Mother should have for all the good she does. Dodge picked up the clipboard and continued. Child support, huh? How many kids? Just my son. Dodge scribbled on the form. When did you last see him? Adding up the months, Ryan released a long sigh. Ooh, over a year now. Almost two. Dodge leaned back, and that nasty chuckle erupted into another coughing attack until a chunk of something hit the back of his teeth. <coughs> so, along with deadbeat dad, you can add poor excuse for a father to your resume. Fuck you. Ryan took two hard steps toward Dodge and stopped. I tried to see him, but I couldn't. Then, under his breath... My wife got a restraining order, and the judge granted her sole custody. Dodge pushed his glasses up his nose and scribbled on the rental document. You realize that without any money, you're not buying, you're selling, and you're not a very good salesman. He smiled up at Ryan. Why would a judge prevent a pillar of society like you from seeing his son? Ryan tried not to choke on the bitter taste of the last of his pride. An image came back to him, the first picture in his album of shame. It was at his best friend's bachelor party. His duty as best man was to organize the traditional strip joint celebration. He had just stumbled out of the men's room, staggering drunk but experiencing a moment of warm clarity perfectly voluptuous woman wearing a light blue lace bikini top and g-string caught him by the shoulders and rubbed herself against him. Ryan slipped her a 50 and pointed at the groom, his buddy Foster, and told her to give him the lap dance of his life. That was the moment Ryan's life started to cave in. The next morning, his wife found a piece of paper with a phone number in his pants pocket. Six months later, they were divorced. A month after that, he got laid off. 
It had taken only three years to lose everything. How long would it take to get it back? Ryan looked away from Dodge, through the window and across the valley to the mountain, to God. I made some big mistakes. Unemployment, divorce. Divorce really hurt. Left him wondering if God would help. As far as he knew, divorce meant he couldn't receive the sacraments. He started to speak, but stopped and fought the impulse to rationalize. He'd organized the bachelor party, and the day he was laid off, he'd walked straight into the depths of depravity. He said, I met a woman who made me feel better. Well, no, not better. Worse, really. <laughs> but she definitely made me feel. He turned back to Dodge. She did something horrible to my son, and before I had any idea, I was served a restraining order. So... Was it meth, hookers, or gambling? Ryan sunk back onto the couch and leaned forward with his elbows on his knees. He hung his head and mumbled, Well, it wasn't gambling. Dodge let fly an especially loud version of his raspy laughter, this one with a trace of genuine humor. <laughs> okay, a $5,000 good faith fee to pay for my risk. And if it even crosses my mind that you're using methamphetamine, you're out. Your rent starts at twice what your apartment is worth. Make rent four months in a row, and it comes down to market rate. If you miss a month, we start over. If you're five days late, there's a 10% fee. That's the most the state will allow. Hey, that's robbery. And I'll have to type up a separate form. But in exchange for renting an apartment without first and last... I'm taking an interest in any future income derived from your patents. Do you have a car? Well, sort of. A 12-year-old probe that's clicked over twice. Dodge shuffled through his folder. Sign this, too. I'm putting a lien on it. Ryan grabbed the growing pile of contracts as if to stem the tide. Does the state allow this? Strangely, it does. Even here in California. Did I mention I'm an attorney? I don't practice law anymore. Bad for my liver. But I had a tenant sue me a couple of years ago. The Dodge was amazed at how well I worked the system. He rambled from one tenant anecdote to another. Ryan read through the documents. With each page, outrage pushed shards of his pride back to the surface. Give me a pen. Dodge offered a blue ballpoint. But instead of signing, Ryan scratched out a few lines and made edits between a few others. As Ryan set the marked-up pages aside, Dodge picked them up, initialized some of Ryan's modifications, scribbled through others, and set the pages in yet another pile. As the sun set, the two men passed documents back and forth, sometimes laughing, yeah, right, sometimes grunting, cold day in hell. As Ryan read the last page, its margins already scribbled and initialed, Dodge leaned against him. Ryan pushed back with an elbow. He put the last sheet on top of the stack and rubbed his eyes. Dodge assembled the contracts and stood. You can bring your stuff in while I retype this. Ryan made a mental note to reread the documents before signing. The front door opened, and the girl walked through the foyer. She stopped at the stairs. Is the woman in the house? Dodge said, No. Your mother isn't home. Learn anything from your mentor? That she is freakishly weird. The girl started up the stairs. Stop. Come here. Meet your new neighbor. Can't. Already did. Meeting is a one-time thrill. 
Ryan said, But I didn't meet you. He walked over, smiled, and held out his hand. Ryan McNear. The girl performed an exaggerated curtsy and said, Katerina Ariadne, pleased to meet you. My friends call me Cat. You can call me Katerina. She stomped up the stairs. Dodge yelled after her. If I find any more paint on your walls... A door slammed, and a few seconds later, the bass line to some heavy metal music leaked through the ceiling. Ryan turned back to Dodge. She's brilliant, huh? Character judgment isn't one of your strengths, is it? Ryan put a toothy grin on his face. Strong enough to know you're an asshole. <laughs> I like you. Dodge headed deeper into his apartment.